be pre- the, the scripture text for today will be Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Please remain standing and hear the word of the Lord. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we have worshipped you for who you are. You are gracious. You are all-powerful, majestic, and worthy to be praised. But as we gather on the Lord's Day, we also celebrate what has been done for us on the cross. We have been saved from sin. We have been saved from our bondage to sin. And Father, this morning we come to a section of your word where we spend some time staring into that darkness, looking at the condition of fallen man. Some things we're going to hear this morning, Father, I know are going to be hard truths, but they are true. And I pray that we will see the majesty of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, even as we look at the fallen depravity of all of mankind. We worship you, O God. We love you this morning. Be with us today. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. As Mark already announced, we're going to be starting a sermon series starting this week on uh, TULIP. So I thought it would be helpful to just sort of give a little background information where we got it from. I know when I first started hearing about Reformed Theology, I was confused about TULIP and what exactly it meant. Uh, So I just want to give a little background to where we get that acrostic from. Uh, A few years before the pilgrims arrived in the New World on the Mayflower, There was a theological controversy that began to spread. It started in Europe and spread throughout the entire world. It started in the Netherlands. There was a Dutch school committed to what we call uh, Calvinist theology. But some of the teachers, they, they began to have second thoughts when it came to some of these doctrines. When it came to things like predestination, election, questions, Related to how men exactly, how are we saved? What is the role of man in salvation? What is the role in God in salvation? It caused so much of a disturbance in the churches that they began to meet and hold synods and things of that nature to sort of hammer out these issues. There was a sizable group leading this movement against Orthodox Reform theology. They were called the Remonstrants. 
they were protesting against these uh, certain points. Eventually, it came, we began to see that there were five points at the center of all of this controversy. What has happened over time in subsequent generations is that these five points has been, have become known as the five points of Calvinism. You may have also heard them called uh, the doctrines of grace, identified by the acrostic tulip. It's supposed to be a clever way of summarizing these doctrines. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. Now someone may hear about these doctrines. They may hear about these disagreements and ask, uh, are these issues even important? Why are we still talking about something from so long ago? Well, the, this disagreement is still going on today. Someone might be tempted to say, can't we just agree to disagree and simply preach the gospel? Can we just move on from these things? Why are these issues even important? There's a number of reasons why they're important. But number one, we don't hold to these doctrines because of John Calvin. We don't hold to these doctrines because of uh, that school in the Netherlands. As believers, it is important that we seek to be as biblical as possible on every aspect. We hold to these doctrines because we believe that they are clearly taught in Scripture. They speak to the very nature of God. They speak to the fallenness of man and his position before a holy God. These issues are important. How you understand these doctrines, they will affect both how you understand the gospel as it is related to you, and they will also affect how you decide to proclaim the gospel to a dying world. The gospel, the good news that God saves sinners. The good news that though we were once in darkness, we have been bought, we have been transferred into his marvelous light. However, as we look at these things, before we get to the good news we have to have an understanding of the bad news. We have to look into the darkness. If Jesus Christ is the light that comes into the world, then we must first gaze into the darkness from which we have been called out of. Is that darkness outside of us or is it on the inside of us? Why is it that the light comes into the world but we did not comprehend it? Why is it that the light comes, but we love the darkness rather than love the light? I heard a preacher say one time that uh, not recognizing the light of the world when he came into the world is like standing on the surface of the sun and denying its existence. Is it really that hopeless for mankind? Is the condition of man truly that helpless? Are we that dead spiritually that we cannot recognize the creator of the world when he comes into the world? Most professing Christians, they will freely admit that we have been affected in some way by sin. But to what extent? Exactly how deep has sin burrowed down into all of humanity? What is the depth of the darkness in the human heart? Are we sort of depraved? Are we sort of dark? Do we have an ability to seek after God on our own? Is there a part of us that remains untouched by sin? 
this morning we come to a section of scripture where the case against humanity, the case against all of us is presented clearly. We come to the place of being laid low where all pride is crushed. We come to a place where we begin to recognize what we actually deserve from God. I have to admit, it is crushing to see the extent to which we have been enslaved to sin. However, it helps us to see just how precious, just how amazing the grace of God really is. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, it is the culmination of an argument that Paul has been making in the first two chapters of Romans. Look with me at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Where does he charge this at? Where does he make this argument? If we look back in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, he carefully lays out his argument against the Greek world. Some of your Bibles might say the Gentile world. His argument is that all non-Jews... No matter where they're at, they're under the curse of sin. They're under the bondage of sin. In chapter 2 all the way up to chapter 3 verse 9, he carefully lays out his case against the entire Jewish world. They're God's chosen people, yes. They have the law, absolutely, but they have broken the law in every conceivable way. So they too are under the curse of sin. The Jewish world. The non-Jewish world, if you're keeping score, that's everybody. Nobody escapes this. All of mankind is under the curse of sin. In the following verses, Paul will begin to hammer this point home. He's going to get specific as he highlights the ways that sin has infected us all. It's going to bring light to just how total our depravity really is. Now, when we hear that phrase, total depravity, we got to do some defining right here. It could be a bit misleading. Uh, when we hear total depravity, we don't mean that every person is as evil as they could possibly be all of the time. Even the so-called, quote-unquote, great sinners of the world in our history, they could have been worse. Hitler was a depraved individual. I think we would all agree with that. But he could have been worse than what he was. He could have sinned more than what he did, even Hitler. We're all sinners, and yet we could sin a lot more often and more severely than we actually do. R.C. Sproul said this, Total depravity means that I and everyone else are depraved or corrupt in the totality of our being. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. Our minds, our wills, and our bodies are affected by evil. We speak sinful words. We do sinful deeds. We have impure thoughts. Our very bodies suffer from the ravages of sin. This corruption isn't something that's out there where humanity has to work hard to keep back. It is a root problem. Embedded in the core of who we are. It is our very nature. It is fallen man's, apart from God's very nature. In verses 10 through 18, we'll see this laid out piece by piece. 
mainly with quotes from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. This corruption, this depravity is total in who it includes. We're all encompassed by this. No one is in right standing with God. Uh, This is quoted from Psalm 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. A quick question. Who is it that can look at all the sons of men and make such a bold declaration? Psalm 14, verse 2 tells us exactly who that is. It is the Lord. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. The Lord who knows the hearts of men. The Lord God Almighty who knows the heart, who knows the intentions of men. It is he who has declared that there is no one righteous. No, not one. Our attempts to somehow earn this right standing with God by our good deeds, they're filthy rags. Presenting our good deeds as a reason for him to declare us righteous It's an insult to a holy God. Not to mention, Scripture shows us exactly what happens when man, who is corrupt from his core, attempts to do good. Have you ever read the book of Judges? It lays out some of the darkest days in Israel's history. It's filled with idol worship and apostasy almost on every page. We see clear immorality everywhere throughout the nation. And yet twice in the book of Judges, in chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 25, we read these jarring words. Every man did which was right in his own eyes. It doesn't say that man was attempting to be evil. It says that man did what they felt was right. They did what they thought was right. That's horrifying when we look at The state of Israel at that time. But we don't have to go that far back in history. We can look at our culture now. Look at what is celebrated. Look at what is called good. Look at what we hold parades for and what is considered reason to celebrate in our culture. Fallen man today is no different from fallen man throughout history. Man is incapable by his very nature of doing what is right in the sight of God. Now, we may be tempted to think that there's some good things that fallen man is capable of. If you're not a believer this morning, you may be tempted to think of yourself, uh, to yourself, I'm not that bad compared to the the evil that others do. I've seen people do much worse. If you're a Christian... You may look at some of the the little sins, right? The little sins in your life and think, it's not that bad. After all, I've seen other people who call themselves Christians do worse. Here's the problem. When we compare ourselves with ourselves, by ourselves, it's not hard to come out looking good. But when the standard is perfection, who amongst us can stand? No one can. God isn't judging on a curve. We don't, at the end of our lives, get on a scale measuring the good things we did versus the bad things we did. And if we did enough good things, we get let into heaven. That's not in the Bible. But if it was, 
you would be on one side and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ would be on the other side. Matter of fact, it doesn't even have to be just you. It can be all of mankind throughout all of history on one side, and we still would not come close to measuring up to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. View your sin in light of a holy God, and then come tell me that it's not that bad. The indictment against mankind continues. In verse 11, we read these words. There is none who understands. Our very ability to reason has been infected. Depravity is total in that when it comes to spiritual things, our minds have been corrupted. Our thoughts can't even be trusted. The damage done by sin runs deep into the thinking process of man. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it, but in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes this. But a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Fallen man. His imaginations are filthy. He's often betrayed by his own memories. His deductions are false. His conclusions are often wrong. There is none that understands. Fallen man cannot even begin to understand the vileness of his sin in the sight of God. He doesn't understand what is involved in the choices between heaven and hell, which I assure you lie ahead for each and every one of us. He doesn't understand at what cost God has provided the salvation that he callously ignores. He will not. Fallen man cannot understand these spiritual things. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 states it a bit stronger, I think, saying that we are alienated from God and enemies in our very minds. Our thoughts are in enmity with our creator. Enemies who, according to the rest of Romans chapter 3, verse 11, aren't even looking for God. There is none who seeks for God. God has made himself known in and throughout the things he has made. Man is without excuse, but do we look for God? No. Instead, we'd rather turn to and worship the creature rather than the creator. Don't you dare listen to the TV personality that would tell you that everyone is seeking after God in their own special way. That everyone has to find their own path to God. It's just not true. There's only one path to God. And that's through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a theological argument a belief that says that there's a part of us that is able to respond to God. There's a part of us that is able to seek after God in some way that maybe it is left untouched by sin. Don't get me wrong. Fallen man is looking for something. And that sounds good, but Paul has just said that no one seeks after God. There's no part of us that is looking for God. 
It just so happens that we are seeking after everything else except him who is worthy to be sought above all things. If you're my brother and sister in Christ this morning, if you're my family in Christ this morning, you may be thinking to yourself, no, Amos, I distinctly remember searching after God. I remember crying out to God. I remember asking God to reveal himself to me. I remember that. Beloved, let me, let me tell you something, and, and this is good news. No one can come to Jesus except the Father draws him. When you were seeking God, it's because he sought you first. He sought you out. You sought him because he first drew you to himself. This is the only way you can be in right standing with God because fallen man will not and cannot take the initiative to seek God out on his own. Man is so unresponsive to God that all the initiative of salvation has to be on God's side. All of our searching apart from the work of the Holy Spirit it does nothing but condemn us further. It shows us what we truly worship by what we chase after. Paul continues in verse 12. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The word here used for turned aside it basically means to lean or go into the wrong direction. It was often used uh, talking about soldiers who on the battlefield would run the wrong way. They would run away from the, uh, where they were supposed to run or maybe even deserting their post. Depravity is total in that not only do we not seek after God, all of mankind together by nature turn and pursue after our own way, rejecting what God has commanded. We have placed ourselves on the throne of our hearts and in fish-shaking rebellion, we will not turn to God, but will only chase after what we deem worthy. What is God's estimation of man's lofty pursuits? They have become useless, unprofitable, worthless, nothing. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. That is God's estimation of our turning aside. We have become useless because of what we chase after. Paul ends this first section by once again ripping apart our imagined goodness. There is none that does good. No, not one. Once again, it's repeated that depravity, it is total in what, that it is universal, all-encompassing for all of Adam's seed affecting our standing with God. Our reason, our ability to understand it affects what we look for, what we seek after. It affects what we worship by what we turn aside for. Those things that we pursue in place of God. And, and notice the repeated phrase that we see in verses 10 through 13. None. No one. Not even one. 
It is repeated over and over again. It says, it says if we read it, it's like a finger being pointed into the chest of every human being. No one, none, not even one. This is talking about me. It's talking about you. It's talking about everyone from Adam to the end of time, past, present, and future. We don't escape from this. We are all included here in verses 10 through 13. As we study this text, the, the weightiness of it begins to pile up, almost feeling like you're going to be crushed. I, I almost was just going to preach verses 10 through 13, but that's not how Paul lays it out. The tension feels like it has us at a breaking point as we consider the fallenness of mankind. It's almost like we want to say, Brother Paul, we get it. We understand. I'm convinced that's enough. Can we get the good news now? But I think that's the point of this text. We're supposed to feel that weight. We're supposed to sit and, and continue to stare at this darkness and get an understanding of this darkness in the heart of mankind. Bringing us to the point where it is impossible for us to put our hope in ourselves or in any man. We must see that fallen man is in a position where if he is to be saved, then it's going to take a miracle on par with the creation of the universe. Paul feels no need to take his foot off the gas. Starting in verse 13, still quoting from the Old Testament, he continues to pile up the evidence against us. By showing us how we can see in our own lives just how total this depravity really is. Look at verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is, is, is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Notice the body parts he highlights here. Throat. Tongue, lips, mouth. Depravity is total in that every word that comes out of the mouth of fallen man is dripping with this disease. Every word that we speak, that fallen man speaks, is infected. The speech of fallen man has become radically corrupted by sin. This goes beyond just simply saying things that we shouldn't say. Turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth, mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, 
they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is on fire by hell. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 verse 11. It is not what enters the mouth that defiles the person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles the person. This is indeed a dark picture that Paul paints of our mouths. A dark picture that he paints of the words that we speak, but why in Romans 3 and in so many other sections of scripture, why is there so much emphasis placed, so much attention given to the words that we speak? One of the evidences of man's fallen nature is what comes out of his mouth. The proof that we aren't right with God. The proof, one of the proofs that we do not belong to God and that this fallen world is in desperate need of a savior is the very words that we speak. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our throat is compared to an open grave. It releases a stench that is foul both to God and mankind. It shows that our hearts are defiled full of spite and completely untrustworthy. Notice an open grave, it's not the grave that stinks, it's what's deep inside of the grave. The smell reveals what is rotting inside. The language of deceit, it is our native tongue and we speak it so well. Our words are like the poison of a snake always at the ready. Striking out in every direction with a speech that is filled with cursing and bitterness directed at our fallen fellow fallen image bearers and also directed at our creator. Our speech betrays the condition of our hearts. It reveals who we are at the very core. And there isn't a human method, there isn't enough behavioral modification that can tame the tongue. You can teach a man not to say certain things, but all you've done is created a man who is more clever in the way he deceives people to get what he wants. Our tongues, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our corrupt speech is an offense to God, and Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 12 that we will have to give an account for every idle word on the day of judgment. The condition of man is not only exposed by what we say, but it's exposed by what we do. It's exposed by how we live amongst one another. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. We don't have to look at all, all throughout all of human history. Just a quick glance at the last 100 years will do enough. 
It shows us that our feet are swift to shed blood, does it not? Someone may be quick to point out, hey, wait a minute, I ain't never killed nobody. I'm not a killer. I've never shed any blood. But doesn't Jesus in Matthew 5 prove us to be liars when he traces adultery back to the lustful look, murder to the angry thought directed at another image bearer? Where the root of sin exists, it is only God's restraining grace that prevents it from blooming and bearing a full harvest of blood-soaked fruit. It is only by his grace that restrains us from giving uh, full action and full uh, voice to what is already inside of us. As fallen man walks with feet swift to shed blood, everything he touches is corrupted. He leaves nothing but destruction and misery in his path. And the path of peace they have not known. This doesn't mean that fallen man never feels a sense of peace because we act according to our nature. Sin satisfies for the moment. When we act according to our nature, we feel good about those things. We feel good when we let loose with what's in our fallen hearts. We have not known the path of peace because mankind leans towards strife and conflict with others, uh, other individuals. Not only that, as I said, our history is filled with strife and conflict amongst nations. This is the plight of fallen man. Finally, in verse 18, Paul hammers the points home. This is the nail in the coffin. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Fallen man lives as if there is no God in heaven that he will one day answer to. The Lord God Almighty, whose very presence, whose very existence should fill man with fear of wrongdoing, is completely ignored. Depravity is total in that we are not in awe of God's greatness and his glory. We do not fear him as we callously and joyously violate his holy law. This doctrine of total depravity, it helps us to rightly understand our state before God. If we don't understand this, we won't rightly comprehend his greatness and his majesty. As I studied this this week, I must confess the songs that we sung this morning, they hit different. As I think about what he has saved me from, and we're singing songs talking about the cross, realizing what he has saved us from calls us to more appreciate what he has saved us to. Understanding, understanding this doctrine, it matters in so many different ways. It affects how we understand government. It's a popular notion that if we can just get everybody to have enough education, enough money, enough food, if everyone could just be at the point where they weren't worried about health care, we could usher in a human utopia. 
Fallen man creates fallen systems. Fallen man cannot and will not of his own accord end warfare with one another and stop the bloodshed because it is our nature. I want people to be educated. I want people to have money to pay bills. I want bellies to be filled. I want people to have enough food. I want and I desire people to get the health care that they need. However, all of these things would do nothing to solve the real problem. All we we would create is wealthy, well-educated, bellies full, wretches still on their way to hell. It would do nothing to solve the real problem. We have hearts of stone that do not love God, that will not seek after God. We need a miracle. We need hearts of flesh that would desire to love him. This doctrine, it affects our interactions with one another on personal relational levels. It affects how we discipline our children. Are those cute little angels that we love so much, are they... Born innocent? It is, is, it, is it our job to keep the evil back so that they remain untouched? Or are they born with a sin nature? No one has to teach their child how to lie, how to lash out in anger when they don't get their way. We don't have to train a child to be selfish. They're born with all of that hardwired into them already. Yes, it is our job as parents to protect them uh, from a fallen world, to protect them from evil. But what our children need more than behavioral modification is the glorious gospel preached to them over and over and over again. They need to be regenerated from the inside out. Our children must hear the gospel. Don't think that your children are too young. They're never too young to start preaching the gospel to them. I pray that for the children growing up here at Green Run, they will remember from an early age, all they remember is hearing the gospel proclaimed. What about that family member that you're frustrated with? You know the one because you just thought about them. That family member, it seems as if they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. How are you praying for that person? Are you desperate for the souls of your lost loved ones and for the people around you? Do you pray realizing that they're acting in accordance to their nature? That you wish they would stop doing the things that they're doing? But do you pray realizing That they're dead in their trespasses. They're slaves to sin. They love the darkness and they're under the wrath of God. They're doing what they are wired to do. They're doing and they're acting according to their natures. Is your prayer, oh God, would you open their eyes? Would you reveal to them the, 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 the depth of their depravity, the darkness that is within them? Show them your glory. Open their eyes. Open their ears. Give them hearts that love you. We have to recognize that all fallen men, they live according to their fallen natures. And if you're a believer this morning, at one time, so did you. We all lived 
according to our fallen natures, no matter when we came to faith in Christ. But it does us well to sit and look at this darkness that God has saved us from. It does us well to let it weigh heavily on our hearts. But even as it weighs heavily on our hearts and we feel as if we're going to be broken, we remember. But God, but God, beloved, but God being rich, abundant, overflowing, more than enough, extensive, pervasive, and complete, but God being rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserve, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, unable and unwilling to respond to him, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you, by grace, I, by grace, all those who call on the name of the Lord, by grace, we have been saved. This is glorious news that is made all the much brighter when we spend some time sitting in that darkness. Reformed folks, we, we often get accused of spending too much time talking about the depravity of man. I would argue that the gospel is so much sweeter when I'm made to understand the depths to which God went to scoop me out of that miry clay that I loved being in. Covering me with the righteousness of Christ, taking care of my sins, past, present, and future. The bliss, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, beloved. Where is it? It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This doctrine is indeed Weighty, but it is lifted off the off of our shoulders when we realize that our depravity, the punishment for our sin, was put on another, and we were covered with his righteousness. Jesus was treated as if he was never righteous, as if he never had right standing with God. Jesus was treated as if he did not understand spiritual things, as, as if his mind was in enmity with his father. He was treated as if he never searched for God. He was treated as if he turned aside and worshipped other things. He was treated as if his throat was an open grave and all he did was utter curses from the day of his birth. And you, beloved, because of what Jesus Christ did, you were treated as if you have perfectly loved God fully at all times for your entire life, as if this never happened because of what Jesus did. It was put on him. This doctrine is indeed heavy, but it help us, helps us appreciate the love of our gracious God all the more. This doctrine is it's not popular. It strikes against the pride of man who believes that he is good. 
even as believers, sometimes we, we can love boasting in the good things that we do. Anything that doesn't come from faith, anything that doesn't come out of glorifying God completely is sin. So, so even as believers, we are going through this life and we are being sanctified. But this doctrine not only speaks to those who are falling outside of Christ, it helps us to rightly view the sin that is still in our lives. What do we feel about this sin that is still in our lives? I heard somebody say one time, we can't uh, treat our sin like a cute little pet that we uh, keep in the house and we're okay with it. We have to treat it like a, a huge uh, monster, a lion that has come into our house to ravage everything in our lives. Take it out in the middle of the street and slaughter your sin. Don't live with it. See your sin in light of a holy God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, in your word we heard some hard things this morning. It wasn't hard because it was difficult to understand, but it's hard at times because of what it says. It tells us the truth about fallen man. It tells us the truth about ourselves and about our sin. I pray that as we seek to understand the doctrine of total depravity, that we would be rightly broken at the sinfulness of sin. But at the same time, as we, your people, see the sinfulness of our sin, we will be filled with rejoicing at the beauty of our resurrected Savior, who took our sin on himself. Thank you for these hard truths of your word. Drive them home into our hearts, O oh God, by your spirit. We pray all these things in the 